So it's said that uh, Buddha, uh, after he uh, was awakened, he surveyed the landscape of the human species and he thought, oh God, I don't know if I'm, I want to teach. There's so much confusion. There's so much uh, wrong direction in the world. And then he also looked a little deeper and he saw that some people had what he called little dust in their eyes. <clears throat> and I, mu- I might say that if you have followed this series with interest, with some kind of compelling uh, reason to be here other than there's nothing else to do on thir- Tuesday night, you probably have little dust in your eyes. I mean that sincerely. Because we're not really talking about superficial dharma here. We're not talking about light-hearted, uplifting, necessarily, uh, dharma. Uh, but we're talking about really the heart of where his teaching was pointing. And uh, because of that, uh, I survey the landscapes and not very many people really want to hear it. And that's from a very limited vision, believe me. But here we are, and we come back every time, and I want to uh, just acknowledge that in all of us. Because the topic at hand is a difficult one. We are understanding the very nature of our lives, the very nature and appearance of ourselves in the world and the formation of the world around us. And tonight I want to continue the theme of feelings uh, that I started a couple of weeks ago and continued through the discussion last week uh, because I want to encourage us to look very closely at what we mean by feelings and begin to really use them uh, as, a, as an indicator, as a, perhaps a warning light on the dashboard of our car that something may be going astray here. If I go down the path of pursuit or avoidance for too long, there's going to be tension. It's inevitable that there will be tension, and uh, how that tension arises is really the topic at hand and the topics we've been discussing for this year. The formation all the different conditioning forces that come to bear upon our lives with a simple knee-jerk and reflexive, reflective, reflexive uh, conditioning that's there. I mean, each of us have had many situations, perhaps daily, where we're doing something. We don't even know how we got there. We don't even know the circumstances of what compelled us to do whatever we're doing, but we find ourselves in argument or in reaction or in some emotional reactivity or just deeply in thought that has led us completely straight. We don't know how, how did that ever happen? And this is how it happens. This is the uncovering of how that occurs. And it, but it, it needs our invitation, as all Dharma subjects do, for us to be able to begin to turn this around and dispel that absent-mindedness that all of us, ignorance, that ignorance that all of us are very formed within and held within the structures. And so this sense of feeling tone is an important uh, component of that. You know, 
from, from what does all this come? Where does the world arise? I saw a, a, a physicist ask that question once. He was out in front of his house and he said, you know, we can't, I don't understand. What, what is all this? He said, That's, physics is trying to answer that. Well, it's trying to answer that in an obje- from an objective reality point of view as a subject looking at an observation. But we're trying to do it from a subjective point of view, from the actual embodiment of the issue itself, seeing the issue arise within us, because that is where the formation is occurring. That is where the Big Bang is occurring moment after moment, ceaselessly in front of our eyes. You know, we'll be sitting and we'll have a a slight... uh, will be drawn in by circumstances or an experience and suddenly we'll be naming that experience. The experience will be connected through our six senses. We'll be elaborating on it uh, and we don't know how what we're elaborating on. It just seems like this is what life is and suddenly there's a whole personal story that forms around that elaboration, that name and form and it's held within a kind of unifying consciousness that seems to hold all the different conditioning factors within itself and suddenly we're often running on a personal story and reacting within that storyline and there we are and that not only there we are but there is our opposition and there is the whole narrative that sent us on that journey how did it happen what occurred knowing though that feelings when if feelings come from us the whole situation comes from us. That's, that's, there's a key point there. You see, the feelings arise within us. They're not intrinsic to the experience. They're intrinsic to us. That is, when there's an experience, we have a feeling about it upon contact. And it's from the feeling we have about something that we start talking to ourselves about that feeling, nurturing it if it's pleasant and avoiding it if it's not, or dismissing it if it isn't interesting. And that sets off a snowball effect in which we get ourselves wound tighter and tighter into an elaboration that we think is external to us. We think that person actually contains the story we hold about him or her or thing. But you see, what we're seeing here is is the whole thing has been self-generated. It's all story. Everything we see, every depiction we make, every separation we have, every disturbance, reaction, every pattern, every righteous indignation, every opinion, every view, all self-generated. Now let me just ask you, if that's true, which it is, I'm not asking you whether it's true or not, you you can decide that on your own and prove that it is, then why is your opinion, which has been conditioned, better than someone else's opinion, which has been conditioned? How can you claim that your opinion is better than the red state, if you happen to be a blue state person? How can, you cl- how can we claim that when it's all just a conditioned reference for everything? You see, it's in unlocking the secrets of how we get caught and bound within our certainty that we begin to come back into the true unification where all opinions are equal. 
That's hard. All opinions are equal? Wow, you didn't listen to Rush Limbaugh today. (laughs) All opinions are equal. And so when we start, you see, if you're really interested in how this disassembles as well as assembles, right? That if when we start paying attention to how it is and what it is we're formed upon and where our pronouncements come from, and you're willing to admit the logical sequenciation through observation and abiding in the Dharma, seeing it for ourselves, then this you can say, that's it, I'm stepping out of that. It's not done so logically. I think I need to step out of this feeling. You just don't go there because you have seen again and again where it takes you. You don't put your hand in fire because you know what's going to happen if you do. And so you just don't. It's not even, it's not aversive. You just, that's wisdom. You've seen it. You felt it. You don't do it anymore. And so that, but we have to learn our mistakes because we keep making them. And they happen so quickly and so perpetually that we just, we just keep falling face first because that's what we call life. We don't want to disturb what we call life, our life. You know, we're still moving it in a certain direction. We still want something from it. We still think it could, there's a payoff here. We still think it's, we can be milked. And that's where feeling tones can help us. They can begin to show us what we call milk, what we call the prize, the payoff, the goal. It's nothing more than a conditioned relationship to an experience. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you really hear the depth of what we've been chasing our whole life. When you start, just let me just let me just get a sense of this experience. What is it that I'm hoping will happen here, and what is it that's actually happening here? Because when we start moving to the hope of what we're happening, there you see, you're taking the feeling, and then you're building upon the feeling through desire and through grasping, which we'll get to starting the week after next. And then the world becomes other than what it is. It's at that point that you and I are formed, egoically formed. You see, because we are a product of our own ignorance. When we get lost in the sidetrack of where the language and thoughts are taking us, we are formed within that being sidetracked. That's where, And I, when I say formed, I don't mean you as a conscious aware entity, I mean you as an egoic assumption, an image of yourself, what you think you are, who you hold yourself to be, the history of what you have pretended to be, and all the logical conclusions that each of us feel about ourselves, and why we keep ourselves under the heavy-handedness of our own persuasion. That's what you, that's what arises, and you can even hear that it's story-built, I mean, it's history built. If, you hold, if we hold ourselves within the logic of our story, and the story comes built upon seasoned and conditioning over long periods of time of feelings we have about things, then we're, we're just a pile of these conditioning layers that have an opinion and view about ourselves in relation to each object that we've had since time immemorial. 
oh, I know you, and I had a bad conversation with you, maybe I can get over it. All of that, all of that stuff, all of that. You see, I, that's where it gets really interesting, not fearful. If you think you're going to loot, get whisked away, somehow you won't be in the same galaxy, you know, that's a misrepresentation, misunderstanding of what the sense of self that's formed is. What you do is become aware without the cloudiness of the confused conditioning. That's what's left. When we take the conditioning out, when we strain it off, what's left is pure water, the pure substance of awareness. That's what's left with discernment, so you don't have to worry that the snake's going to bite you. You won't, you won't know what it is. You'll know what it is because the, the language, the knowledge is not lost. It's just used proportionally, properly, in perspective. And so then you can, you should, but what is strained off in terms of our identity is our history, is the assurance and conviction that we are the person we've always thought ourselves to be, which has been a very limiting conviction, which is limitless. It hasn't promoted us. Even if you have a very positive image, even if you have one in which you think you're the top, whatever it is, of whatever it is, still it's limiting because it's not connected. It's disconnected. So that means there's you and that's it. <laughs> so if there's just you and you have a great image, great. You have a great image of you in aloneness and isolation. You know, it's like having, celebrating your own birthday alone every year. <laughs> <laughs> Am I having fun yet? <laughs> so this is, see, when we come on stage, the egoic sense of ourselves comes on stage, everything else is separated from me. That's what an image does. An image invites, invests in the image of me separate from. That's what an image does. And that's what this is showing us. It's showing us how separation occurs. And so, you, but what, what doesn't arise within one's image, we have to be very perceptive of this is your heart. Your heart is shut closed. The, the stronger your personalization, the stronger the image, the more closed your heart. Did you, God, I don't know if I said this. I'm, I'm having a senior moment here because if, if I start telling you a story I said last time, raise your hand and <laughs> go, shh. <laughs> Let me know. But anyway, in the New York Times about a week or so ago, there were there's a experience, uh, an experiment where they some novice meditators uh, were given six weeks or eight weeks of training. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> anyway, the point of a. <laughs> The point of the study is, was, that there's something changing in us here. Some meditation invites a connectedness that 
is almost subliminally understood. When each, if I went around to each one of you, few of you would claim the overriding experience of selflessness within your practice, quite likely, but you would find that you were more caring. Well, that means the heart is breathing in you, which means the sense of self is being released, relinquished, which means that you're on the wise path. And at some point along that line, as the sense of self keeps relinquishing its stand to the heart, it sees itself for what it is. It reaches a point, a threshold, where you go, oh, God, it's an awakening up of the proper perspective of who and what we've always thought ourselves to be. And then the game is over. The game is over now for you. The game has long since been over for most of you. But there will be a moment in which you'll be convinced of that. And so you just, but it, it, it depends on two things. Your sincerity is the most important thing. And your persistence. So that you don't say, oh, well, you know, I've done this for, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's time to find something else. You just stay with it. And it works. It will work. It will work. Faster for some than others, but there is no comparing here. There's no evaluation across lines. So we're looking at the sense of avoidance, pursuit, and, and, and ignore. Avoid, pursue, and ignore. The basic drives of our life. The way the formation of me occurs. The energy, the, the battery pack that's in us, that forces, allows, ultimately, ourselves to come into full manifestation. Avoidance, pursue, pursue, avoidance, and ignore. Those are the three verbs that control our destiny, egoic destiny. Now let's just look at them, because I want to do this from a, a psychophysical approach, and it gives you a better reference for being able to tune in to the feeling tone as it does occur, often on down the line a little bit, maybe connecting to your wanting or your desire, maybe a full force grasping, but it gives you a body sensation of feelings, and I think that's so important if you're going to take this seriously, because if you're just looking for the feeling tone in experience from a mental perspective, well, it's, it's very subtle and very difficult to do when you're on the run all day like most of your lives are. But if you do it from a sense of the body, and you can start feeling the body move or lean in a particular direction and realize that that leaning and then call yourself back, you can get this sense of that physical indicator of the feeling having arisen. Okay, so, so what is it? I mean, this is pretty obvious, but what do you think happens to the body when we're pursuing something, right? You can already feel the body lurch forward. And that leaning forward, that leaning forward happens whether you're sitting still you know, driving your car or walking as your pace quickens or even lying down as the, the sense of energy arises in the body. So it's an energetic feeling, but it's a leaning into feeling. It's a forward leaning stance. 
And so if there's a pursuit on the way, which means that there's a pleasant feeling that has set you off, get a sense of how it works in the body. And as I will mention that I'm not stopping, there are three feelings, but there's a fourth posture that we're going to talk about this evening. So as I get to it, you, you've, we listen to the first three uh, postures, but then the fourth posture is a corrective posture, and of course it's the vertical posture, which I'll talk about. But so you just, okay, what is going on here? You can, that sense of leaning forward, can, uh, you can then offer yourself a question. What's going on here? What am I leaning into? What is it that's so important? Why am I losing myself? Because as soon as we are leaning into, the sense of self is so strong. It's such a self-centered world of that lean. The scope, spaciousness, goes, narrows down. You have blinders in your eyes as this overpowering sense of feeling becomes exaggerated in your mind and compel, more and more compelling. The blinders get narrower so that it's just the object of your choice that matters to us. So as that happens, you can feel it energetically in the body and you can also feel the body in movement with that energy. And you can say, wait a second here, what's going on? What's happening is a closing down, is a, which is what, how this sense of self manifests in the world. It doesn't manifest as an open, as an open, available, spacious, still person. It manifests the sense, egoic sense of self, the images that we believe about ourselves are formed within this very narrow corridor of wanting. And so you go, oh, oh, I see, okay, wait a second here. And there's an insensitivity because you don't care about anybody except your need to fulfill whatever the wish is, whatever the feeling tone is suggesting. So that's why, you know, if you have to let somebody in, it's like a begrudged sense of patience. Come on, as we hover our foot next to the accelerator, because it's thrown us off from that, from that journey that is, so, is derived from the mental narrowness of vision. Busyness, all of these, all of the, the tendencies of mind, all of them, the busyness, the narrowness, the insensitivity, the eye-centeredness, the forward-leaning, future perspective, those, that's all coming from pursuit. So it's, it's very simple if you just don't worry about what set you off this time and that you're going to have to have a talk with Tim. You just, t- oh, pursuit. Just be very simple with this. Well, pursuit, okay. So what am I pursuing? What's so important about what it is that I'm moving? It takes, it takes a lot of maturity to ask yourself that question in the middle of pursuit. Because you want to pursue. You want to fulfill what it is that your image is telling you is so needed for yourself. It's so important for us to have. You see? Because as the chamber narrows, as the corridor narrows, as the egoic sense rises and gets the sense of importance of this object increases. And if you're way down the line 
long after the feeling has happened and the bells and whistles have all gone off, it's like, you know, you're, it's almost impossible to stop. So don't get too uh, self-deprecating uh, when you're finding yourself lost like this. Rather, just open your eye. Oh, wow, I'm really chasing. I can't seem to stop it. Just get a sense that this thing has more momentum than you're able to stop. Just get a feeling for the ambiance of it, the, the whole way it's working in you. Now, I want to talk about, we're going to go through this fairly quickly. Avoidance. Okay, so pursue, avoid, pursue, avoid, and ignore. So avoidance is, of course, what's the physical, psychophysical quality of avoidance? Well, it's, it's like <coughs> digging your heels in, wanting to turn around. It's a, it's a sense of arresting the motion that you are in. And so you want to just be aware when there's this, and it often, again, it's energetic. It's, it may be that the avoidance isn't profound enough to create a great disturbance in you, but you can feel it in the body nevertheless. This sense of backward leaning, or you want to get out of the situation and you're just looking for a way or an excuse or an exit to be able to do just that. Now that, interestingly enough, is past-oriented. The pursuit was future-oriented. That's what I'm going to. And this is more past-oriented. That is, people who have a tendency towards avoidance want to remain in whatever they're in and not go forward. There's reluctance to change. There's reluctance to go forward. There's a reluctance to, you know, to sort of scramble what I already have. When you're on retreat, it looks like, I don't want to go home again. I just want to stay here. When you're on pursuit, when you're operating from pursuit or pleasant feelings and you're on retreat, you can't wait. You've been counting the days and hours, quite likely, and checking them off and just say, okay, well, three more days, I think I can put up with this. But you're <laughs> so you can also hear that avoidance and pursuit are really the same coin just flipped over because what you're pursuing, you're also avoiding some in some way, and what you're avoiding, there's also the opposite of that, which is getting your attention. So these are really the same, the same one and the same thing, but they have a different feeling in the body, and that's what I want to direct us to. And as we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, often there is uh, a whole embodied character around one of these qualities as opposed to the other two, highlighted and more exaggerated, and so you, you just want to become aware of how that in, interfaces with your, with your connectedness. It also, of course, uh, a person of avoidance is a worrier because they're worried about what's up ahead. And so there's a lot of planning, a lot of detail work that they're trying to figure out so that they can avoid all the difficulties that may lie in their path in the future. And they're very reluctant to get themselves moving, as I mentioned. And there's an indulgence in memory. So you can probably hear yourself in, in one of these. And there's, oh, I, the alarm goes off and I go, oh, I got to get out of bed. Oh, it's like that. 
right? That kind of, ugh. Well, this is conditioning. It's not you. You're not a bad person because you have these conditions. If you formed as an egoic entity, which all of us have, you have them all. All of us have this. All of, them ha- all of us have them all. So are you better than the person sitting next to you? Are you worse than me? No. I have them all too. So here we are together. That's what makes it all, that's why I can sit down. We can, that's what Sangha is. My conditioning, I want to see it and I'll help you see yours. And you can help me see mine. It's just a sincerity of heart that meets with, it, with that agreement. That's all. So then there is the delusion, ignore the person. This is a hard one because it's hard to, you know, we've all had that where you just, you're not at the party, you know, you just aren't there. And, or the meeting, you know, your mind isn't there, your interests aren't there, you're just not there, you're floating somewhere. And no matter what you do, the floating is far better than the, the meeting. So calling yourself back doesn't seem to work, right? And there's just this sense of ungroundedness and boredom, often accompanied with boredom. And it's just, but, but there's no sense of, of connection to anything. It's hovering. And that's why the body really can't be used in this one because you're not in the body. You're hovering above it or beside it somewhere. It's, it's, it's a level of uninvolvement. Now that also has an energy tone, and if you get perceptive enough, each of us can start noticing when we're not in our body. I mean, it feels very different to be in the body, even if you're not leaning or one way or the other, just being in the body and not being in the body and being just adrift in the cloud of thought. That's a very different... But it may be that you spent so much time in the cloud of thought that you're, that's your happy escape route. So you have to start uh, seeing that this is not helpful for you to spend long periods of time just drifting. You, know, you have to see the consequences of this behavior before you ever pull the reins in on it. Because you can't talk yourself into pulling the reins on. You have to see the consequences. You have to see what it doesn't give you and what it does to other people not to have you present. And what it does to you not to be present. Right? So all of these things take a certain willingness to address it and look and, and, to, and to study it and to, and to experience it fully as a human being. But there is a fourth stance. If there weren't, we would not be here. The Buddha would never have been called to take an existence because there would be no way out. There would just be one of these three governing factors and that would be the course. It would all be delusionary. We would be running, pursuing, arguing, ignoring, and that would be the source. It's pretty much the way it is. But there is hope. And that is the fourth stance. The fourth stance is the vertical stance. Completely grounded and completely connected. 
You see, each of the other stances, because they are basing themselves in past or future or just a drift in thought, it had, didn't have a ground, didn't have a sense of connection. It is through the vertical stance that we, the only way that we can connect, the only way that we can start unwinding this causal component of sequenciation, of dependent origination. Can't do it from ignorance because ignorance is what is the fuel that keeps it running. You have to. What's the opposite of ignorance? Well, if not seeing is ignorance, then seeing is its opposite. So, but you have to call yourself into it. Again, it can't be forced. And this is where I don't think we have reached a maturity of understanding. Most of us think we can. Well, we can will ourselves. We can force ourselves to be aware, just like we can force ourselves to be a yoga teacher or to be a this person or a that person. But this is not like that. This is a completely different. You have to see. This is only, you'll only want it when you see its value for you. When you understand the limitations of the ignorance and then you have no choice but to want to be aware. And then the more aware you are, the more you see its value and the less you want to be ignorant. And for a while, it's a very close race as to which one's going to win out. It's like a one-point basketball game. Right? But this vertical stance is the stance of humility. And this is, you see, each of the other stances, the avoidance, the pursuit, or the ignorance, is not humble. It's full of arrogance. It's full of me-centered motion. I don't want life to be this way. I'm going to pull back from it. I really want to hold that experience and grasp that. Or I don't care about life. To hell with it. I'm just going to float around. Those are very arrogant postures. Each of them. Extraordinary. There's only one posture of humility. Where we're not pursuing feelings. Because feelings are the basis on which we are formed and therefore the basis of arrogance. But when we stand vertically and you're not, and you're receiving what is coming in rather than acting from what is coming in, which means the next domino isn't just propelling you forward, which is the body's lurching forward or digging its heels in backward, restraining itself then there's just this. There's just this. It's just, what comes, it's like suddenly you wake up and you can see again. And you never realize what the world looks like. And maybe each of you have had flashes of that in your meditation. We just look, he said, I've never seen such red. I've seen red, but never like this. The vividness of life comes in just for a moment in that vertical stands because it's quiet we're not adding anything we're not conditioned in that moment we're not reflexively moving forward just because it's a compulsion in ourselves there's a settling back and just now here is the here are the keys i can give you the keys i can't force you to do it nor can i give you the understanding that would encourage you to do it I can show you ways to do it, and I can show you what it means and looks like when you do it. But it's up to each of us. The Buddha couldn't do that for his disciples. 
So there's a limitation as to the transmission available. It has to be picked up and run with, right? But here's how it looks. If each of the three postures, forward, backward, leaning, or drift, if each of the three postures, I forgot what I was going to say. Well, I'll move on. <laughs> It'll come back. That means I don't have Alzheimer's. I just learned that. <laughs> if you can remember what you forgot, then it means that's not an Alzheimer's moment. So if it doesn't come back, be suspicious. <laughs> okay, so the vertical stance, I got it already. So the vertical stance is one in which I'm not asking anything from life. The other three stances, I was asking something from life, something other than what was being given, right? So I was placing a demand. I want this to stay. I don't want this to be, and I can't stand what's happening, so I'm going to lose myself. So it's when, when we start bargaining about life or to life, that's where we come in because we intercede into the present moment with our sense of memory about how we want this to go. Okay, the vertical stance doesn't have that. It doesn't have, it doesn't have a bargaining chip. It's not an argument. It's just standing in it, in it. That's why we spend so much time talking about non-judgmental acceptance is because that's what it looks like. It looks like non-judgmental participation. It looks like full embodied participation in life, but not asking anything within that participation or complaining about it or whining or anything. It's just standing there. You see? So you stand. Now, what psychological components must be available in order for that standing to be there rather than to be a pretensive way I'm standing? I'm trying to be patient, but you know, you've know got all this rumbling going on inside. That's not standing there. That's not giving yourself over to life. That's just trying to restrain yourself from what you don't think you should do. But when you're standing there, you don't have any of that going on. We have what's going on is what's going on. So what does it look like? Listen, because this is key. What's it look like inside of oneself in that vertical standing. It looks like you're receiving what's going on rather than arguing or rather than asserting an opinion about what's going on. So when you're receiving life, when you're just letting it come in, you see, which makes complete sense, doesn't it? Because as soon as I try to manufacture what's coming in, then I've got myself as the inner mediary between what's coming in and what I want to come in. But when you're just letting what come in be what comes in, then what comes in is just life without, it's no, there's no partition there. You and I are the partition. We're the problem. But life is always there to be received. Here's a, okay, so receiving may sound a little bit weird, so here's something that's available to each one of you. Listening. See? I could, listening, understanding, learning, 
receiving. Those are all synonyms for accessing life, allowing it in through the pores of our spirit. So when you're listening to somebody, I mean really listening. Each of these words can be faked and usually are. Usually when we're listening, we're waiting for somebody to stop so we can tell them what we really think. So they need to be pure. They need to be, okay, what's it look like to listen? To put no boundary between what is being said to me and how I'm holding it. See, in order to do that, you can't have an opinion about it. As soon as you have an opinion about it, you've asserted yourself, your arrogance, and often you're running down the feeling tone. I don't like what he's saying. And we're so afraid that what he's saying is going to change me into what he is, and I don't like what he is, or she, that I won't let it in. No confidence, no, no sense of stability, no sense of faith that anything can govern your life except your own influence or your own control, your own idea of what you need to protect yourself from. But your heart knows its way. When you're receiving, listening, your heart isn't going to be influenced so that you become a burglar. It just isn't. Because a connected heart doesn't think in terms of robbery as a satisfactory vocation. (laughs) It doesn't think that way. It thinks in terms of connectedness. And so if you're willing to let it in, you're going to start feeling more of the connectedness that was in that New York Times article that I will not mention again. (laughs) And so you can then navigate, not from your own sense of control, but from this sense of being fed. And it doesn't look like your life looks now. That's your life, our lives, look pretty ego-centered now. And so the way an ego-centered life looks is the way dependent origination operates. Knowledge, certainty, influence, opinion, control, that's the way it looks. As we go down this path of dependent origination, those are the consequences of not stepping out of ignorance. That's what it's going to look like from now on, unless we're willing to look at it. But here's what it looks like when we step into the vertical stance. Listening, connecting, caring. Humility. I mean, I, it's just, you don't know as much. I mean, you know it, but you don't assert it all the time as some kind of indication of a position. You know, it's like, just open, open, openness. See, okay, there are a lot of very free-wheeling people in the room who like to think of themselves as being open. If you're basing your openness on a feeling tone of who you're listening to, is you're not open at all. Openness is beyond feelings. It's not asserting your openness by what the person, whether you like them or not. As I've mentioned before, and no one raise your hand this time. As I mentioned before, when I was in hospice care, the hospice is a very open, accepting, everyone come organization. So a fundamental Christian 
group came to us and said they would like to be the volunteers and they'd use us as their hospice. So I took it to the staff and the staff who had, some of whom had used the, the, these people or been in their homes said, no, no, we're not having anything to do with that group. They're, they just make our lives miserable with Bible talk and all of that stuff when I, when I go in to serve them. And I said, wait a second, we're here to serve everybody. We're, that's what being open, truly open means. But now this is conditional openness. We'll serve these people, well, we won't serve those because they preach to us when we go in their house. Is that what you're saying? You see? But this is a very liberal group. You know, and we all pride ourselves. I'm open, I'm, I'm available. I'm well, are we? Who is it that you're not willing to listen to? Because it's based on a feeling tone. How open are we? How available are, is our consciousness? You see, it's really available to anyone that has our same opinions. We like those. And that's why we live in the area of the country we live in, and that's why we, right? But I question whether that's sincere openness. Right? So we're, we're really taking the ice pick now to this. We're really looking at what this thing, this solidness, what it means to form around feelings. That's why I wanted this second talk. I want us to move this thing out and really start discovering how to melt this block of ice that we hold with some practical Please pick up the homework because it gives you practical ways to start looking and dissolving this so that our lives are truly open. Okay, all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So how open are you to your own inner life? See, what needs to change in order for you to feel self-satisfied? Because there is where we're not open. Let life flow through me, said Rilke in that poem I read. Let life flow through me so that there is no obscuration. It requires trust. <clears throat> if there's something more to you than your opinions, then your defenses need to protect you from. Something else will handle that. So if, you're, if you can form the talk tonight into an intention for yourself, only if it's a natural intention, if there's something that comes to you, say, I, I want to know what real openness is, or something, then form it, form it. Don't do it because I'm persuading you to do it. Do it because it's in you to do it, that you want it for yourself. 
establish that intentionality. Okay. Thank you all. If there are any questions or comments that you'd like to ask. Well, start where you know what is real. Start with what the question is, like, is it all imaginary? Well, how do I get to the real if I keep getting confused within the imaginary and getting lost? Start with what you know is true. Start, with, start there. Do you know yourself to be true? Well, I, yeah, I, th I think I'm here. And then you say, okay, so what is it that I think is true? What is it that I think is true about me? What is it that I believe in? Where does that truth rest? What does it rest upon? Right? And you say, well, my history and the fact that I, you know, whatever it is, and my degrees and all of that. And if, but that, those are like descriptions or something. They're, they're like, what is it that my sense of self really rests upon? Or you can take it objectively. What do I know about all this? I mean, I know that I'm feeling something. I know that there's hardness that there's softness here, that there's ground under my feet. I know that I, I'm in a body. That's my interpretation of this. Let me start and rest with what I know and start asking questions about what I know. So I'm not asking us to go into the imaginary. I'm, I want us to rest with where we think we're certain and from time to time ask questions about that certainty, just to loosen it up a little bit to see how certain you really are or whether your certainty is based upon the fear of wanting to be certain or upon the truth of that being real. You see? So, but don't go off into this. Every time I say knowing what the mind is doing, that's an objective stance. That's not thinking or getting lost in thought. That's being present to the mind's drifting. Right? Like, I remember many years I used to just get lost in kind of a stare thing where I would just, like that. And then as I got into meditation during those times, I could actually be aware of, what I, of those staring, of that staring. I could be aware of the fact of what the mind was doing when it was just staring out. And that cut it. It cut it so that it never happens to me. It's just, there's never, I don't go, it's like it doesn't happen because as soon as you begin to see what it is for yourself and that it's not fruitful, then it just ends itself. So each thing will be ended when you see that it's not real for you. You thought it was. You look at it again and you think, oh, that's just, that's not needed. That's not useful. Yes. I, I had a really strange experience when you first started talking about leaning into something. And uh, I realized I was leaning into your words. And so I sat back, and all of us, I started feeling kind of sad. 
<laughs> Not in my eyes. <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay, so she was talking about uh, when she started, uh, when I started the talk, she was sort of leaning into my words, and then she said, oh, I'm not going to lean into words. I'm going to sort of settle back and just listen to it from a more spacious way, and there was a sense of sadness that she was no longer the person I was speaking to, but there were others in the room. Actually, when it really feels like the Dharma's getting in, it feels more like I'm speaking just to you. Okay? So... Uh, but there's also a sense of of receiving it. Actually, not not it's not a trying to hear. It's just just letting it come in like a wind. Like you're just you really want to feel the wind, right? So the best way to do it is to open up your senses so that you can feel the wind, right? And then the wind does whatever it does, and then it goes, and then it's like, wow, that was really something. See, that's that's a Dharma talk. But a Dharma talk also directs you to your experience. So the wind, so the words should be like, what am I feeling now? Just like what you were doing. You begin to look and see whether it, it can direct your actual living experience as you're listening, not as a philosophical thing to discuss later. Right? So if you can enter, the, the words will take you there. If you're willing, if you're interested in the words and you're letting and receiving them without... Uh, qualification, just let them in, they'll take you to the experiences where they're coming from. And it'll feel like I'm speaking to you, and it'll also feel like it's a very personal guidance, meditative, like a guided meditation. Yes? Are what? Fruitful. Are so true? Are fruitful, right? Are fruitful. Right, because one of the things I'm, one of the things I sometimes struggle with is, is that we're, it seems that we're focusing so much on everything that is suffering, it's negative, and, you know, uh, I'm looking for the, for that part that I'm gonna, uh, that's gonna, um, I guess I'm clinging to something that's pleasant. Well, I'll give you something pleasant to look for. You know, she, she says that uh, if you look for what is untrue, will you ever see what is true? Uh, no. You'll be what is true, but you won't objectify it. It won't be objectified. Now, so saying, I want to take you into a different frame of reference so you don't get scared with what I just said, okay? You'll be able to feel your heart and you'll know that that's more true than whatever your mind is doing. And you'll trust caring, you'll trust compassion, you'll trust love, you'll trust connectedness, you'll trust, but it also contains a no in love, so it's not just like yes, you know, stuff like that, it's not a romantic kind of, it's a, it's a discerning love. Right? That's what you'll trust, and you won't necessarily know where that comes from, and you won't know how it accesses you, but you know it without a doubt, of, that it's speaking the truth through you, right? So that you will know. So just trust the heart, but don't romanticize it so you start thinking, oh, just more love, you know, no, he slaps me, and oh, just, I'll just keep... No, he slaps you, you get out of the house into an abuse shelter, okay? So that, do you understand that? 
Okay, so because that is not love, right? So you begin to learn and discern. It's, it's just as difficult as any other path, but you begin to learn and discern your way through life by knowing, by the discerning quality of love. Right? So if you want, and there's also joy there, a lot of joy. There's joy in everywhere. Anytime you release what is false, you're, you release the suffering to joy. That's what happens. We start off this way. That's why we talk a lot about contraction and struggle. And, but as soon as you release yourself from that, you're not struggling anymore. So you, you see, it's only a temporary fix until you get yourself out of it. And I'm in a temporary fix of time. So I say thank you all very much for this evening. We'll be talking about this uh, in discussion next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.